the Italian Wine Podcast is the community-driven platform for Italian wine geeks around the world. Support the show by donating at italianwinepodcast.com. Donate five or more euros and we'll send you a copy of our latest book, My Italian Grape Geek Journal, absolutely free. To get your free copy of My Italian Grape Geek Journal, click support us at italianwinepodcast.com or wherever you get your pods. Grazie mille. Welcome to Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Listen in as we journey to some of Italy's most beautiful places in the company of those who know them best, the families who grow grapes and make fabulous wines. Through their stories, we'll learn not just about their wines, but also about their ways of life, the local and regional foods and specialities that pair naturally with their wines, and the most beautiful places to visit. We have a wonderful journey of discovery ahead of us, and I hope you you will join me. Welcome to Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Today it's my great pleasure to travel to the Barolo wine hills of the Langa in Piemonte to meet my guest Francesca Vaira from the renowned GD Vaira Winery, located just outside of Barolo itself. Buongiorno, Francesca. Thanks so much for being my guest today. How are you? And is it a beautiful day in Langa? It's a fantastic day, even better because uh, of this talk with you, Mark. Thank you for your introduction. And uh, it's absolutely a joy to be here and, uh, and to share this podcast with you. Well, I'm really excited to uh, have our conversation. But to give our listeners a vivid impression of of where you are, and I, I can picture it myself because it is such a magical place. Can you describe where you are in the wine hills of Barolo because it is such a special wine zone? Yes, uh, we are, I feel always very grateful and blessed, if I have to say the truth, about the place I born and uh, where I do live. Uh, we are in Barolo. We are actually in the upper part of the village of Barolo. Barolo is a place that many people know because of the wine. Uh, indeed, uh, is a super, super small place uh, in the world. We are on the western ridge of uh, the Barolo village as well as the Barolo production area. Uh, what does it mean? We are mm, living in, uh, in our wineries base uh, in Bricco delle Viole, which among the historical crew of the Barolo production area has always been the highest in the western uh, of those crew. What the standing on Bricco delle Viole allowed you to, to see the Alps uh, arising from uh, with the Alpi Liguri and then the Maritime and then the Cozze. So the actually the very first the three sectors of the Alps, the Liguri, as the name say, they divide Piemonte and Liguria. So everything you see from in front view and then going uh, uh, to your left uh, is actually the Barolo production area. So you will be able to see the village of Novello, the village of Monforte, the village of Serralunga, Castiglione Falletto, Grinzani Cavour. But in, then if you look on the other way, you really see these beautiful um, mountains. So the Alps, the biggest point we do see from the winery is called Monviso. Uh, it's a magic mountain. I grew up uh, having the Monviso in my heart and in my eyes and uh, I realized that growing up that I could not live uh, without that. In between us and the Alps, we do have uh, the, the beginning of the Pianura Padana. Uh, so this actually impacted beautifully the microclimate of the area. So being a bit uh, higher in elevation, we always enjoy uh, beautiful ventilation, which is key. It means that uh, it's never too humid in summertime, neither in wintertime. And this is actually explaining, according to somebody, the name of the hamlet where we do live. Uh, 
which is uh, quite a strong name. It's called Bergne. And according to somebody, uh, belongs uh, from this idea of svernare. So people say that uh, the Latins, uh, they used to trade along the river, which is a uh, um, running all around Barolo production area. The river starts uh, south, it goes up north, and it turns its way of uh, flowing from west into east. So it's exactly the opposite if we think of the, of the main rivers in France, especially whenever we talk of uh, winemakings and, uh, and rivers. And uh, this river almost creates like a 90-degree corner, um, which represents the northwest side of the Barolo production area. And uh, apparently the people used to trade along this river. The major town of the area is called Alba, uh, was founded by the Latin, the ancient name was Alba Pompeia. But then we do have a Kerasco, which is another beautiful and precious gem, quite uh, famous if we talk about uh, food uh, because of chocolate and above all because of nails. And uh, Kerasco takes its name because it was a castrum, a military camp. In between, we have Polensward, the university uh, created by Slow Food uh, um, is based. In, uh, in anyway, uh, the Latin used to trade along the river, but were smart people. They did not want to live too close to the river, which means too much humidity. Uh, and also in terms of farming, yes, it means a, a great uh, opportunity to have access to the water, but then also the risk of frost. And so they used to move up uh, on the hills where my family uh, is living. We, we have a quite special surname. Uh, our surname historically is carrying the J. Uh, we always wonder where the family was coming from because the J is a, a bit different, uh, let's say, sound and letter into the Italian alphabet. We don't really know, but we know that uh, we are in Barolo and we are in Brico delle Viole since uh, the 1600s. So we are deeply rooted uh, here. Well, that's an absolutely brilliant description, both of the area, but you've not just given a vivid picture of I'm imagining the Alps are snow-covered now. That Monviso, that pointed mountain, very distinctive mountain, is is uh, covered in snow. Is that right? So, yeah, we have a little, little, little bit of snow. Uh, indeed, uh, yesterday night and this morning, we have such a warm air. It's quite impressive. Uh, people say that, uh, I mean, weather forecasts uh, expect uh, uh, a lot of snowstorms. Uh, we can wait to have snows. Uh, actually, um, as you as you might know, we had uh, 2021 and 2022 has been very dry vintages in the, in the region. Whenever we talk about Barolo, we are talking about dry farming. So what does it mean is, uh, is that we really uh, belong uh, somehow to, to the snow. It's not a surprise whenever you travel and you drive around the Barolo area uh, that uh, there are so many little chapels dedicated to the Holy Mary of the snow. Uh, somehow we realize why so many churches, because people were really begging the Holy Mary uh, in this uh, Catholic uh, uh, tradition we do have in the region uh, to receive a lot of snow through the win- into, in, during the winter time. Uh, the most part of soil we do have in the area is clay. Uh, having the snow means that the snow is melting little by little. And this is giving time to the clay to absorb the water. And this is going to be the water that the roots of the vines are going to steal uh, out of the clay later in the season. So because of this lack of water, because of this lack of snow mainly, um, yeah, we wish uh, we were going to have a lot of snow. There is also a way of saying uh, which you might have heard uh, spending so much time in Italy. Um, 
in the this uh, this expression say that the weather is going to take place the day of Santa Bibiana, which is uh, December the fourth, is going to be um, extending basically for the most part uh, of, of definitely the very first part uh, of the winter. What happened on December fourth this year? I was not at the winery, so I, I was uh, I was abroad, but I called my dad and say, "Hey, how's the weather over there?" And they told me it's amazing here. It's sunny and it's nice. I say, "Okay." Maybe not so much skin and this this right, yeah. <laughs> but we will see. We will see. I mean, the season is very long. I can say I love this job because uh, I keep being amazed by nature and his uh, energy and uh, and the fact that whenever you think things are lost, uh, they are never lost. Something amazing always uh, happen, almost as a caress. Okay. Now, Francesca, GD Vira is totally a family enterprise. Your parents, Aldo and Milena, speak of their immense pride that you are una squadra, a team. But first of all, you're a family. So tell us the story of your family wine estate and introduce us to your family. Introduce us to the squadra. Look, Mark, whenever I have to talk about my family um, and whenever I'm traveling, because uh, this is actually a little bit of my job to be somehow the, the face uh, the front woman, let's say that, uh, of, uh, of our family and team. I wish I could pick and bring everybody in my luggage. So to let everybody to know each of the member of the family. I have to say is a, is a quite a special family. My, my father, um, my father family. So my grandparents, uh, Giuseppe and Francesca, they, they both born in this uh, hamlet of the village of Barolo. Uh, so Vergne in, um, Soon after the Second World War, they have they moved uh, into the town of Torino, and being somehow some of the very first people moving they, there, they've been in charge of helping their friends and the kids, their friends, to find a job, to find a house in Torino. Uh, I don't know how many people really know the story of Barolo because whenever you come right now, you can see a place of wealth, you can see a place of culture, um, you know. People are traveling a lot uh, in our area and people from all over the world, they travel to the area. So this, from a cultural point of view, it's extremely enriching. And uh, this is also impacting the food scenes and uh, how the restaurants have been changed through the years. But back in time to to move into the city was actually the only way um, to to let your family survive. It's been, uh, especially my, my family always told me that uh, in between the 1950s and 1960s, we had uh, 10 years in a row um, in the region of Barolo of uh, awful weather, um, mainly um, impacted by hailstorms. And as you well know, whenever a hailstorm comes, there is really nothing you can do. I Whatever I see the sky getting dark and I can smell the the smell of the hail getting closer, the feeling is to run into the vines and embrace the vines and, and protect them. And then the moment you you paint yourself already in the vineyards, you realize that uh, with one arm, as much long as they can be, you wouldn't be able to protect not even one entire vine. You know, so you always feel so small um, in front of the of the hailstorm. And I think this is what is keeping our family extremely humble in what uh, in what we do. But well. In such a poor background, economically, um, also considered that uh, tractors that arrive in the plane ten years uh, ahead that uh, the ones have been designed for the for the hill, so all the work was absolutely manual here. Somehow, soon after the Second World War, the city seems to be the biggest attraction. So my grandparents moved there. 
Uh, they got five kids. Uh, my father is the mid one. He has two older sisters, two younger brothers. And since the moment he had to choose for high school, his desire was to study agriculture and uh, more specifically, vine growing. Why so? It's true that uh, he grew up in the city, but yet his grandparents of both the families were into the countryside. And he always uh, saw his grandparents around, uh, you know, either Christmas time or Easter time or Sundays or, you know, he grew up with this idea that was a very tough work uh, being into farming because very physically hard. But that was uh, six days a week and Sundays were Sundays. So he had this uh, image of his grandparents, white shirt around the table, a lot of great food, uh, good wines and, and everything. And uh, so little by little, probably he had this idea that uh, that could be the coolest job. He was willing to work hard for six days a week. He was willing to work hard for nine months in a year because the three months in winter, in winter time, they use a party to have a lot of snow. So he somehow paint himself to stay to spend his days in winter time to just get out, maybe break two pieces of wood, put into the fireplace, and then spending his time to read and uh, research and uh, keep improving his uh, wines and his uh, his knowledge about the area and the farming and everything. My grandparents, of course, saw this idea as, uh, I mean, that was not even an option to consider because uh, you were farmers back in the 60s if you were not skilled enough to to do a step ahead into the social ladder. So whenever you had the, you were coming from different backgrounds, why? Why being a farmer? So they did not allow him to, to study viticulture at uh, high school. And uh, that was studied in Torino in 1968, uh, took place. It was uh, quite uh, intense in that town. And that was the moment my grandparents, they actually realized that uh, probably was a good idea to send my father uh, into the countryside to spend the whole summertime. And into their eyes and mind, that was a win-win project because uh, it will show my dad that being a farmer was absolutely not cool. Um, it will uh, keep my dad far away from troubles. And it will show the other siblings that if anybody wants to be involved into the revolution, the only revolution for them was uh, to grab a hoe and work the soil. These things did not really happen. At the end of the summer, my father went back to his parents. And, uh, and basically told them, I realized being a vine grower, this is really what I want to do. The same year, the older sharecropper, uh, my grandparents actually did move into the bigger town, but my grandfather always kept uh, the family house, uh, which always have uh, also beautiful name. It's always being called La Cascina. Uh, so with the article, so the uh, farmhouse. So that is already telling about how special that uh, unity of land uh, and uh, that house uh, were. So he always kept uh, that uh, and he had this uh, sharecropper was living there and was taking care of the fields and everything. So the guy decided to retire. We're at the end of sharecropping system. So if any of his kids wanted to keep uh, on uh, this, uh, this system, the system could be care in between uh, generations. But since none of his kids wanted to be a... Uh, um, sharecropper anymore um, then uh, my grandfather had to choose in between uh, um, renting the property or hiring somebody and they decided to entrust my dad who started to take care of the exploitation of the family at age of 15 uh, so he was extremely young he was a city guy he actually has been the city guy for a long time and um, and it is and uh, so age of 15 my dad started it 
he started to take care of an exploitation that was uh, seven hectares, of which only 0.4 were vineyards. Francesca, what, what year was this, roughly? 1968. Okay. That was versus the end of his uh, career at uh, high school. Uh, after that, he, he finished, he decided to go for agriculture. He's agronomist, has his background. Um, and agronomy back in time was uh, really a, a vision 360 degrees. So he has been educated on uh, vineyards while making, uh, but as well as uh, cattle and, uh, and little animals and peach trees and grains. And so his vision has always been uh, very complete. In 1961, Dada certifies uh, production organic. He has been the very first producer to vine grower to certify his production in the entire region of Piemonte. In 1972, another tough uh, vintage uh, hit the area. His family always sold uh, the fruit. My dad was a student, so till that moment he was farming and uh, taking care of picking the fruit and selling. In 1962, the, the people who used to sell his fruit were were not uh, interested in uh, purchasing the fruit. And, um, and then versus the end uh, of the season, when it was time really to pick the grapes, they were offering such a ridiculous amount of money. So we joke with that. His 1968 is a revolution. Actually took place uh, four years later in 1972. When he refused himself to sell his fruit for nothing. And um, my grandparents <laughs> didn't really, let's say, understood at first this, uh, this vision. When my dad, uh, my dad had to prove him and show him the data, he he could not uh, be support. He was not supported by his family in at the time of the picking. So he had to hire people. He knew exactly how much was costing to hire the people, and how much money they will be able, uh, how much uh, grapes they will be able to pick. And so to do calculation for him, that has been extremely easy. And uh, what this calculation proves that the cost of the picking was actually higher than the amount of money they will get uh, selling the same amount of fruit. So that was simply a net loss on picking. And uh, when my grandpa saw that and understood a bit as a challenge, look, my dad would say, okay, if you think you can do better, do by yourself. And he just gave him the money to buy the very first distem machine, the very first press, and his very first uh, cask. Uh, three years ago, we have been able to rebuy uh, this very first press. And uh, it's been a beautiful moment because my dad asked my brothers and I, say, hey, the old guy to who I sold my very first press finally came yesterday and asked, and asked if uh, we want, if we are interested in buying that again. <laughs> That's an amazing story. Francesca, I'm, I think it's really important for our listeners to understand this picture that you've given so vividly, that although Barolo is one of the most famous wines in the world now, a wine that attracts people to the area, to Alba during the truffle season, to taste the foods, to taste these magnificent wines. And though Barolo itself has a history, modern Barolo going back to Cavour and to Carlo Alberto, the story of this renaissance of a wine zone is actually very recent. And your father was really at the start of this renaissance of Barolo. And now, you know, there's so many fine producers in this small area. But going back 40, 50 years ago, it wasn't like that. It, it, the name wasn't yet 
around the world as it is now. Indeed. But uh, these things always amaze me a lot. Uh, but uh, when I look at my dad and I look um, to many other people of his generation, what I see are people that uh, had a great desire to prove themselves. Uh, were people that uh, if they decided to stay or like my dad, uh, it was actually the only one to go back to being a farmer somehow, having way more opportunities in life uh, as people were looking at him uh, back in time. Well, were people who love the place, uh, who were hard workers and wanted to share the beauty they discovered themselves with the other people. And um, this is the great energy. And those are the people of Piemonte. Most part of the time, very humble, very low profile, uh, but hard workers and with a huge art. Yes. So tell us now about you and your brothers are working with your mother and father still. Tell us about your team. Sure. So my dad had uh, these beautiful ideas and, uh, and great vision. Uh, when he met my mom, I always uh, painted two of them a little bit as uh, my mom being uh, the, the gas uh, on, on the fire and uh, the fuel on the fire. So my, whenever my dad uh, met my mom and felt support by her, that has been really an incredible moment uh, because everything is better nowadays. It's something that was being built and projected by my dad and uh, supported by my mom. But the two of them, they started from the scratch, also starting from family who did not approve them to do that. Uh, so they had... Uh, a tough begin, that's, uh, that is not a, um, a secret, uh, but together they make something amazing. And together they've been able, as parents, to, despite the fatigue, despite the, you know, the tough time, you know, when the hailstorms arrive and many other things that can happen in our job, but we always saw parents happy with their job. And I think this is the reason why Giuseppe, my older brother, then myself, then our younger brother Isidoro, one after the other, we understood that uh, we love this job. So even if it was the kind of job that was not uh, allowing us to have, uh, let's say, classic parents, parents, they take you out on Saturdays, <laughs> like uh, we, we we didn't mean renounce, uh, but uh, um, but uh, it's so beautiful to be together. And myself, what I can tell you is that the same um Love for farming, I see that into my younger brother Isidoro, the same desire of research and perfection I can see into, in, into Giuseppe. So um, let's say that also the DNA of my family is about a lot of research. My dad created and did a lot of mass selection uh, with the Fresa grape, with Dolcetto. Those are grapes that have been lost through the years just to be focused on Nebbiolo. Uh, but we love them. And this is a big commitment to my family to keep farming. And so it's a serious biodiversity within the property, despite the fact we are, we are vine growers. In before you were talking about, uh, you know, modern Barolo, uh, we did a lot of research about uh, how people used to enjoy Nebbiolo before Barolo was invented. And that's how Clare JC has been, uh, has been discovered. And uh, that's something that we really, really love uh, next time. And the first time we're going to meet in person, Mark, to, to show to you. Because in terms of gastronomy, this old version of vinifying Nebbiolo, which was the way that people used from at least from the 1600s until 1960s, uh, which is a way lighter style. You can almost paint out as a pet net uh, version of Nebbiolo, something that if you compare to Di Barolo, as we do know nowadays, is absolutely the opposite. But there are two wines that on the table are amazing, 
complementary to to each other. So it's uh, it's all of us working together here. One of my sister-in-law, she's working with us as well. And, uh, and then we were supported by una, beauty, una bellissima squadra, as you said, is a, is a beautiful team and uh, they share our values and, uh, and it's keeping improving uh, together with us. Well, that's a wonderful story and a wonderful story of family above all and of a belief going with your father in the land itself. The land, I guess he must have really realized at that young age of 15 that this isn't just farming. It's There's a capacity here to be able to make great wine, not just good wine, but great wine. He always had this vision to make wines that could talk to the heart of the people in what uh, our wines since day zero aim to be is not uh, to surprise. Actually, that's safe for quite a, some years. He wanted to make the most amazing wines. And then he realized that the more challenging and the more desired for him, for his wine was to touch their the heart of the people and to be ambassador, so to carry a sense of place and all the characteristics of the varietals. So even if uh, through this podcast people cannot see the area, I wish that drinking a glass of uh, Vita wines, they will be able to taste, to imagine, and to be in the area. Uh, I, I think you're giving such a vivid description of both the place and of your family commitment that I'm sure that, that people will taste this in your wines. Italian Wine Podcast. If you think you love wine as much as we do, then give us a like and a follow anywhere you get your pods. And let's turn to just a few of your wines because we don't have a great deal of time here. I'd like to first talk about a white wine, which I was curious to read about, your Lange Riesling. I've never had a Riesling from Lange before. Uh, how did this come about? And tell us about this wine before we talk about some of your reds. Bringing Riesling in Piemonte has been uh, a shock for the area. Uh, my dad had fallen in love uh, uh, with this varietal when he was uh, writing and uh, studying for his uh, thesis at university. Uh, he did his university with his uh, professor of microbiology, um, was uh, Annibale Gandini, is, uh, is, uh, is still alive, is a very old fox right now, but uh, has been somebody who really touched my dad's heart as a professor. And so he badly wanted to do his thesis at the university with him. So when uh, he went to this professor, Professor Gandini told my dad, say, Mr. Vaira, I know you will be more interested in doing a thesis on red wines because my dad was already farming and winemaking back in time. But actually, I'm currently working on, uh, on white grapes. So if you want... Then we can talk. We can do. You can do the research on uh, malolactic fermentations in white wines in Piemonte. And people were talking about two grapes. They were talking of Erbaruce, so Caluso, and they were talking of Cortese from Gavi. The third grape was Moscato, but of course, uh, to do a malolactic fermentation of Moscato is, I mean, is not. Uh, uh, <laughs> let's say, like the very first uh, connection you will create among this grape and, uh, and this kind of vinification. But the best part of literature, the most interesting and the most uh, advanced, was actually coming either from France or from Germany. And the word Riesling was keeping coming over and over again until my dad apparently found like an old bottle into his grandfather's cellar. I let you imagine those uh, Gothic characters. My my grandpa was uh, 17 years old when the Second World War ended. So um, this uh, Gothic character to him not really like a pleasant vibe, unfortunately. And um, 
And so when my father asked if he could have had that bottle, my grandfather would say, yes, absolutely. Just take it away. My dad started to open the very first bottle of Riesling. Then he had access to other older bottle of Riesling. And what he was uh, surprising him was this uh, aromatics into evolution. Whenever we talk about old Riesling, we use the word hydrocarbs. In, uh, whenever people talk about old Barolo in the region, we don't even use the Italian word. We use the French word. We talk of goudron. But goudron is nothing but tar. And if you think whenever you are uh, working on with the oil, tar and gasoline, tar and hydrocarbs is exactly part of the same family. So he had this vision that a red wine coming from Piemonte, a white wine coming from Germany, two regions that historically had no connection, but somehow they could find like a midpoint. And that's how he had the desire, a little bit as a white flag in Barolo, to, to plant in a vineyard where he found a lot of sandy soil, his very first mine of uh, Rhine Riesling. Uh, we do have two vineyards. One is uh, based on uh, clonal selection coming from the Geisenheim University. And then we have another vineyards where we had the, the joy to plant some vines coming from uh, uh, Marcel Dice and Ostertag and uh, uh, Rengstrat von Bull. So um, friends uh, from other parts of the world, and as you well know, it's a bit like uh, talking about chef sharing the recipe, you will never share a recipe um, to another chef unless you have a full trust of that person. And you will never share a vine to another vine grower unless you have a full trust. So he started to plant this vine of Riesling. He has been the very first one. Now there are over, I guess, 40 producer farming Riesling into the Barolo production area. Um in Lange region, and then uh, that opened up uh, a new trend in the in the area. That's an amazing story, and what I particularly like about that is that that connection in the evolution of both Barolo and Riesling, that sort of petrolly notes you get on aged Riesling, and uh, and as you say, the tarry uh, characteristic that can emerge from Barolo with time. To make that connection between the white and the red is absolutely fascinating. We don't have a great deal of time, but I do want to both talk about Dolcetto and Barbera as well as your Barolo wines. So briefly tell us a little bit, if we can, uh, about, as you say, these great varieties that are equally important in many ways as Nebbiolo and very much a part of the culture of La Langa. Yeah, you're touching like a very special <laughs> Point mark and uh, Forley. I grew up in a in a special family, as you already understood. And uh, my dad always had a vision that uh, the different grapes of the region, so Dolcetto, Barbera, Nebbiolo, he always compared to my brothers and I. And he always had this vision that as a parent, you cannot make ranking in between your kids. The moment you're going to make ranking, you're going to screw completely the education. You're going to completely screw your family. But you, as a father. You as a parent, your role is about understanding the unicity and let every single grape to show its best. So this is actually a big challenge because whenever you work this way, there is no like a priority in the seller whenever it's time to wreck that, but the priority is to see really what is the priority among all of them. And so to spend the same care 
on a dolcetto vat as well as a Nebbiolo vat on a Barbera vineyard as well as a Nebbiolo vineyard. We have some special wine in our range. We love to give an, an idea through our classic wine, so the classic dolcetto, Barbera and the Lange Nebbiolo. Uh, as pictures of the grape, all of them are made with plants are, let's say, uh, to from 10 to 20 years old vines. So they already give a beautiful structure, but they are wines finifying stainless steel. Beautiful way to be introduced to the varietals. But then we have some special, and the special touch is the age of the vine. So we do make a Coste Infossati Dolcetto, which is a crazy um, selection. In 2022, if you can put your hands on one of those bottles, uh, and when you see the prices, it's almost a shock. We need all the fruit of two vines uh, of dolcetto planted in Cruo Brolo to make one bottle of that wine. And it's one of the few dolcetto you can actually age. And uh, right now, people, they don't think dolcetto is a cool wine. But whenever it comes to food in our region, so whenever you think of the pasta, whenever you think of the veggies, whenever you think of the soups, uh, but also the poultry, uh, dolcetto is a rock star. Also, whenever you think of uh, truffles, you know, we tend to pair truffles with aged aged Barolo, old Barolo, perfect in terms of aromatics as comparison. But if you shave your truffle on a cheese fondue or if you shave your truffles on a um, plate of tallarines, so the local pasta, a good dolcetto is actually killer. So something to to discover. Um, For the Barbera, we also have old vines Barbera. And uh, this is actually goes under, let's say, more technical name, Barbera Superiore. Uh, it has its name, is uh, Viola delle Viole. Historically, the very first vineyard was planted in Bricco delle Viole. And it's one of those Barbera that we do say in Piemonte Barolegion. So whenever you have the opportunity to drink a Barbera of 20, even 30 years, in a blind taste, you will get confused and think it's a Barolo, that to say how close they can get to those grapes. And then whenever we talk of Barolo and Nebbiolo, yes, we love to give voice to the different uh, uh, the different vineyards. And um, the cool thing is that whenever you drink a Barolo Bricco delle Viole, then you compare to a Costa di Rose, and then you compare to Oravera. And you can also compare to the Luigi Baudan estate, which is part of Vaira, but it's based in Serralunga, so Cerretta and Baudana vineyards you can see that the care is the same, the winemaking is the same, and what is singing into the glass is the unicity of every single spot of land. Oh, those are beautiful descriptions too of grapes that are so important in the heart of the people in Langa. Now let's talk about your Barola wines. Let's talk about uh, Brico delle Viole because this is the heart of the estate, isn't it? I would say, yeah, people always tend to look for flagship wines more than calling that way yes the heart is actually a beautiful expression uh and i also will add probably is the wine that designed the style of the company because brico delle viole for the microclimate also for the age of the vines right now brico delle viole is made with plants are basically from 40 to 90 years old uh so it means a lot of consistency from one vintage to the other but also a lot of structure through a lot of finesse. Well, Brico de Livio is the one that designed the style. Um, I can paint my dad uh, with his, uh, at very first, uh, with his desire to make something astonishing. Uh, looking at Brico de Livioli as a, a place, as a piece of white paper, whenever, where you can draw whatever you wanted. And then actually realizing that that was not just a piece of paper, but 
was more like a filigrane, you know, um, a piece of paper that has a train, that has a structure. And so his desire changing and uh, turning into the desire to let everybody to notice the unicity of that piece of white paper. And so it's actually the wine that trained us to be even more gentle, to even to be even more delicate. And so that allowed us to approach to every single other single vineyards as well to every single wine we do make with the same care and finesse and, uh, and precision at the same time. That's, uh, again, uh, as much a, a description of the wine as of your philosophy and of your approach to winemaking and I think probably to living as well. Francesca, I'd like to turn now to the gastronomy of La Langa in relation to your wines, because it's so rich and delicious and such a grand and eloquent cuisine that is also very humble and a, really a fitting partner to the great wines of the area. So can you perhaps explain the foods you love best, the foods that are part of your heart, the foods that are part of your family, the foods that you'll be eating uh, in these weeks to come and the wines that go so well with them? So I think that uh, definitely like a strength in Piemonte are appetizers as well as uh, pasta courses. Then whenever we talk about main courses, maybe because I'm not a huge fan of meats, but uh, yes, we have uh, something like more like uh, stew meat, but also um, like poultry. This is going to be the season for other two special um into into both the category, one is going to be the bue grasso di Caru. Uh, people love to make bollito, and that was actually a tradition in my family for the twenty five uh, night. Um, so after the big lunch, yet uh, our granny Nonna Francesca was inviting everybody just to have a little um, cup of broth, <laughs> and, uh, and of course a couple of. Um, Tortellini were inside, and uh, and then the meats uh, were coming after. And whenever we talk about uh, poultry, is a uh, capon magro, and uh, so like uh, uh, definitely a, like a, a richer kind of uh, uh, of um, how say like a um, gallo, like a cock, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But then yes, appetizer pasta. A lot of pasta in our in our tradition, and then quite a good amount of desserts. So, uh, let's say starting from the end, uh, a super classic is the hazelnut cake uh, together with zabaione and uh, and moscato. And uh, the sec the secret is uh, in our way of making zabaione. I would say old Italy is uh, putting a little drop, a little sip of uh, marsala, but actually when you are whipping the the red of the oak together with the with the sugar and you're ready uh, bagno marie and so when you're starting to get fluffy the tradition is to open moscato and to put uh, some fresh moscato inside so to make way lighter and uh, and fresher oh wonderful this is something to definitely to discover definitely not the uh, lightest um probably the most uh, i will set into the most energetic side uh, of the whole then appetizer historically the most part of appetizer they're pairing with dolcettos uh, we do have a lot of veggies into our appetizers. Uh, I'm thinking of the giardiniera. I'm thinking of uh, insalata capricciosa, insalata russa. And often there is also, uh, there are also eggs uh, paired with that. So there's always this kind of like a um, greasiness uh, related to the eggs, uh, mayonnaise. And the tannins of dolcetto, they match with that in a 
fantastic way. So this is also the secret whenever we talk of pasta. Sure thing, uh, it's Christmas time. Uh, so the pasta is not a plain pasta unless you you toss it with a, a tons of butter and, and white truffles on the top. Then people love to make uh, the classic uh, ragu. Uh, usually we tend to put also a little bit of a salsiccia. It's a salsiccia di bra. So it's giving a bit uh, of an extra bite and... Uh, um, the pungent uh, but very gentle tones of the of the black pepper. What about the agnolotti alpine? Those are dangerous. Uh, I have to tell Mark, I unfortunately I don't have as much time as I wish to spend in kitchen and making food. So I have some good suppliers of agnolotti uh, in the region. And anytime I go myself to buy agnolotti, I have to put in the trunk of my car. Otherwise, I will eat them as potato chips <laughs> from the back <laughs> before I arrive home. So I love them badly. Every family makes it in a slightly different manner, but uh, it's uh, not uncommon to have um, to have different kind of meats. It's fun because now we see uh, super fancy meals. So the homemade pasta di Tayarin, they are made with uh, 40 yolks. And uh, the agnolotti del plin are made with the three different kind of uh, three different meats roasted, and indeed those were the poor dishes. Those were the little bit leftovers of uh, the meats, maybe from Sundays, and work with a lot of veggies uh, to create the filling of the of the pastas. I, I love our tradition because being so humble um, has been uh, able to. To, to be so modern and to be to talk to to the heart and the, the mouth of the people still nowadays. Um, and then whenever you are in the area, it's fantastic because yes, it's you will find carne cruda, vitello tonnato, agnolotti del plin, tallarin in every single restaurant, but every every single chef is gonna make his own way. So it's always a good insight to me to order like a dish of a, a vitello tonnato to see how the people are working. And the tradition is changing a lot. We were talking about that before. Uh, consider how technology has impacted. Whenever we talk of vitello tonnato, we are talking of mayonnaise. But back in time, people have no fridge. So I let you imagine the risk of being poisoned. So the tradition, the old tradition in making vitello tonnato is actually completely different from what people most part of the time can uh, can eat. Uh, somebody said that it's called tonnato because uh, the meat was cooked for so long time, was completely gray inside, maybe not so nice looking as uh, what you can see nowadays. And people were taking the pieces of meat that were falling apart through the cooking with the oil of the cooking and working them with uh, capers and anchovies and hard-boiled egg. So also this tradition changed and uh, and i think there is uh, so much to discover about the past uh, of many many dishes of the region well that's that's another fascinating story francesca and what i think is really important for our listeners to understand is so many people come to alba now for the great food and the great wines but the way you describe the origins of your wine estate of vaira from the the humble origins after the war and really making something great at difficult times and similarly the cuisine of Langa has these same humble origins. Even the tartufo, one of the most expensive foods that one can buy anywhere in the world, was a humble food that crafty people who knew where to find them could, with the use of dogs, would be able to find. And now it's become something that is sent to New York or to Tokyo, you know, and at, at exorbitant cost. But basically it was something that people that, with the knowledge 
of the land, of the intimate knowledge of the land, could find for themselves at times when, when food was scarce. So I think that's so interesting to trace that evolution of this wonderful cuisine, one of the greatest cuisines in Italy, uh, to accompany wines that are truly world-class as well. Mark, I just want to make you smile. I don't know if you ever heard, but back in time, people were making salad with the truffles. So shaving them <laughs> and just put a bit of oil <laughs> and salt. <laughs> wow. So can you imagine yeah. to order a salad like that nowadays? <laughs> Amazing. That is incredible. Francesca, final um, question I'd like to talk about is hospitality, wine hospitality at Vaira. And can our listeners, I, I'm sure after this wonderful conversation that our listeners who are located all around the world, can they visit you? Can they discover what Vaira is and your wines? Yes, absolutely. This has always been part of the DNA. It's a very simple and, uh, and yet humble hospitality. So do not imagine to, to see roller coasters or uh, <laughs> other things. But uh, the, the desire to do hospitality at Vaira has always been about uh, um, helping people to know better what there is behind a bottle of wine. I try, I try to do it today, um, but uh, the, the doors of our winery are always open to, to people who love wine. And, uh, and we always love, with, you know, as you can easily imagine, people come to the area because of Barolo, the two comes to the area because of truffles. But we always love to open them the eyes to other less known things, like the story of Fraser, which we didn't talk today, but end up being one of the kids of Nebbiolo uh, or one of the parents, according to somebody else, and to rediscover the beauty of Dolcetto. And uh, so, yes, absolutely. Uh, we also have some special stained glass windows in the winery. They're really, really worth to to be seen. So whenever you're booking your your experience, you're contacting us uh, uh, to to come and visit us. I would highly suggest to come uh, in the morning or early in the afternoon, so you can really enjoy uh, these uh, those windows and uh, how they do impact our everyday world. This, I, I've seen the beautiful colors. They look absolutely. Stunning and uh, really unique. Francesca, thank you so much for taking the time to be my guest today. I know it's a busy time, but it's been such a pleasure talking to you. You've, you've transported us all to a very magical and special world, but also to a very magical family. You've talked so lovingly about the work that you all do together, about the origins of the Vaira estate. And I'm really eager to visit and to meet you myself. So I hope we can meet in 2024. But in the meantime, thank you so much. Mark, grazie a te tantissimo per questa opportunità. So thank you very much for this opportunity to share Piemonte, to share our land and our love uh, for, for that. And above all, thank you for your love for wine and food and your desire to share that with people because this is something that I definitely learned from wine. The best people in wine are the people that are sharing people. And, uh, and this is what you're doing through this podcast. And uh, thank you for this opportunity. Grazie mille, Mark. A presto. See you soon in Barolo. Sì, spero di sì. A presto. Ciao, Mark. Thank you, Francesca. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Please remember to like, share and subscribe right here or wherever you get your pods. Likewise, you can visit us at italianwinepodcast.com. Until next time, chin chin.